0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me on our program Issues in Perspective. As we begin 2012 as Americans And as evangelicals, we will face, no doubt, huge challenges. The economy, foreign policy challenges, Iran, a resurgent Russia, and the behemoth China, as well as the ongoing challenges of the rapidly changing Middle East. But perhaps most importantly, we face a national presidential election in November of 2012. What should we do? How should we position ourselves for a will most likely be a very troubling year, the year twenty twelve? What exactly should be our relationship to our culture? Therefore, to answer these questions or at least to create a framework for answering them, the entire program of issues in perspective this New Year's Week is devoted to question the culture and the Christian. Should we separate, identify? Or transform. The Bible warns against worldliness and the devastating consequences of following the world and not Christ. From the Old Testament, we see that the children of Israel got into big trouble when they imitated their pagan neighbors and brought their altars and images into the temple. Yet somehow, the New Testament teaches us, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians have been removed from the world's power at conversion. And because the cross established a judicial separation between believers and the world, Christians are citizens of a new kingdom. The Bible both discourages absolute physical separation from the people of the world, yet instructs believers to witness to the world, all the while keeping from the influence of the world. How do we resolve this tension? This is a profoundly important question for those who hold to ethical absolutes, as I do. In a culture that is increasingly pagan and increasingly relativistic, how one speaks Christianity to this culture is critical. Should Christians separate from the culture and live in isolation? Should Christians seek to accommodate completely to the culture and seek to influence its institutions and values? Or should Christians seek to transform the culture by seeking to control its institutions and claim each for Christ? Historical models for each are readily available from church history and the present world in which we live. The goal of this program is to, invi- to really evaluate each model and then biblically evaluate each one. First is the separational model. The separational model of relating to culture argues that Christians must withdraw from any involvement in the world. There is an antithesis between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and the choice is clear, withdrawal. Clear biblical examples of this choice are Noah, whom God called out of culture before he destroyed it, Abraham, called to separate from pagan Mesopotamia, and of course Moses, who was called to separate from idolaters Egypt. The New Testament buttresses this conviction with verses like Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve two masters. For this model, the Church of Jesus Christ is a counterculture which lives by kingdom principles. It has nothing whatsoever to do with this world. One historical model of this would be the church before Constantine's critical decree in A.D. 313. During that time, the church refused to serve in the Roman army, refused to participate in pagan entertainment, and refused to bow to Caesar's lord. It was antagonistic to the culture, separated from it, and yet sought to win it for Christ. Another historic example would be Anabaptism during the Reformation, exemplified in groups like the Mennonites and the Amish of the 16th century. For them, there was an absolute antithesis between the kingdom of God and this world, and they rejected the church-state concept. The church, in their view, was a free association of believers. There was no established state church, they said. Religious liberty, non-resistance, often pacifism, and refusal to take vows and oaths separated these communities from the world. Isolated and separate, social service establishes and furthered Christ's kingdom on earth, they said. Well, how should we think about this separational model? Well, in a culture that is increasingly pagan and antagonistic to Christianity, there is much that is appealing. This model stresses the otherworldly character of genuine biblical Christianity. It further calls on people to recognize that this world is not my home, as we often sing. After all, Jesus radically rejected the status quo of his culture and died because of it. Yet this model has serious dangers. There are three dangers, at least I can see three. First, separation can quickly lead to asceticism, a lifestyle self-denial that ends up denying the goodness of God's creation. From God's declaration in Genesis 1, that all creation is good, to Paul's powerful affirmation that everything is created by God and nothing is to be rejected, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, the Bible condemns all tendencies toward an asceticism that denies creation's innate goodness. Secondly, the separational model easily produces a dangerous sacred-secular dichotomy. For the believer, the Bible clearly rejects the compartmentalization of life into things that are sacred and things that are secular. For the Christian, everything is sacred. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that we are to do all things to the glory of God. Finally, this model can lead to a complete withdrawal from the culture, something clearly condemned in the Bible. Paul chastises the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 for misunderstanding his admonition about disciplining a wayward brother. He says that what they processed incorrectly, they are not to associate with sinners, not brothers. The only way to do this was to die. The separational model, in my judgment, is inadequate as a paradigm for the believer to follow. Well, What about identifying with the culture, accommodating to it? Well, to live both in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of the world. God works in this world through the state and through the church. The believer, therefore, has a dual commitment to both the church and the state. Identifying with and participating in and working within all cultural institutions, business, government, law, is part of the mandate for the Christian. Christians are therefore to live both in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Joseph comes to mind as an example of this. He rose to the top of the pyramid of Egyptian power. Daniel played key political advisory roles in the empires of both Babylon and Persia. Jesus identified with the world. He ate and drank with tax collectors and assorted sinners. He clearly did not separate from the world, for he was a friend of Nicodemus and associated with key officials of the Roman army. Finally, the book of Acts demonstrates apostles associating with Ethiopian eunuch, with Cornelius, another Roman official, and so on. In Romans 13, Paul illustrates the role of the state as a clear sphere of God's work. Historical examples include the church after Constantine's uh, decree. He restored church property. Bishops were now equal with other Roman officials. Over time, the church became wealthy and powerful. It was kind of the in thing for the empire, and complacency did result. Another example would be modern civil religion, which sees the nation-state as ordained by God for special redemptive purposes. Jonathan Edwards believed that as just Charles Finney in an earlier part of our American history. As we evaluate this identificational model to accommodate to the culture in all its ways, its strengths are clear. It emphasizes that this worldly character of the Christian life is real. There's much in this world that we can and should affirm as good. The model calls people to recognize that there is importance and good in the world now. It likewise affirms that God is at work in and through the cultural institutions, like the state, business, and even the arts. A Christian can identify and find benefit in each one of these institutions, it's argued. However, the weaknesses of the identificational model of accommodating to culture are glaring. Its principal danger is that identifying with the culture can lull the Christian, into complacency, into a blindness toward the influence of evil in culture's institutions. Anyone involved in politics knows that the greatest test of one's faith is working in politics. Evil is always present, and the pressure to compromise one's convictions is always present. This model can also lead to an uncritical acceptance of prevailing cultural practices and attitudes, particularly in democracies where a majority rules. This is prevalent, and pressures to go with polling data as the basis for decision-making is often tempting. Therefore, most Christians who identify with institutions find that the more those institutions actually end up influencing them instead of the other way around. Contemporary society is far more permissive than it was in the past, and the evangelical community is being affected by this permissiveness. Finally, this model can lead to a loss of the church's prophetic stance. The church can also almost really become married to the culture. One disastrous example of this is the church in Nazi Germany. It was crying better Hitler than Stalin and uncritically embraced Hitler's state as a matter of expediency. The same thing's happening, in my judgment, to American culture. It did in the past. In some ways, it seems to be occurring even as we speak. This model has danger in producing a complacent and soft Christianity. Well, the third model is the transformational model. This model takes the transforming power of Christ and applies it to culture. Despite the fallen nature of humanity and the subsequent curse of creation, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection reversed the curse for humans and culture. This argument says that there's now hope for human release from bondage to sin for creation as well. That was the center of ancient Israel's hope that the world would be restored and the focus on Christ's redemptive work in the New Testament. Romans 8 emphasizes the complete remaking of culture from sin's curse. This hope is easily translated into an optimism about culture's transformation. Historical examples we could look at, for example, the Reformation. John Calvin's Geneva reflected this transforming power. Calvin taught the total lordship of Christ, and it extended to the state, to economics, to the family, and so on. Therefore the government of Geneva during the Reformation experienced radical reform and pursued righteousness in making and enforcing its laws. Work to Calvin in Geneva as a God ordained vocation, whatever its specific nature. The city experienced remarkable economic transformation as well. A similar transformation occurred in the Puritan colony of Massachusetts Bay in America in the 1600s. All aspects of Puritan culture were brought into conformity with God's revelation, and a cultural transformation resulted. There is much to affirm in this model. It recognizes the gospel's power to change both individuals and culture. It is common sense to expect that when a person trusts Christ, that his or her lifestyle, and therefore they will change, but so will the culture around them. Ultimately, nothing is immune in culture from the gospel's impact, it's argued. Likewise, this model calls in Christians to recognize their responsibility to work toward the day when God's kingdom comes to earth and justice will rule. There are, however, several serious shortcomings with this model. The transformational model can neglect the radical nature of sin's total devastation. Humans remain enslaved to sin, and even believers daily struggle with its power. The scripture abounds with warnings about how subtle and powerful the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil really are. In addition, the transformational model can promote an unbiblical optimism, a near utopianism. The Bible rejects such optimism Apart from the return of Jesus Christ. Humans, even those regenerated by faith, always struggle with sin, and it will only be when Jesus returns that the victory over evil will be complete. In my view, the transformational model comes up short. That's why I propose a synthesis of all three. As we approach the year 2012, as we begin it, I borrow this phrase from Robert Weber, the incarnational model. He proposes and argues that it's modeled after Jesus. For Christ separated from the evils of the culture, yet identified with the culture's institutions, and yet also sought to be the transforming agent for the world. And he changed people from the inside out. By adding to his deity humanity, Jesus identified with the world, its social order, its people, and its customs. And that's what the church is to do. At bottom, this is the heart of Christ's admonition in John chapter 17, that we are to be in the world but not of the world. Jesus Christ separated himself from the evil distortions of the created order. He had nothing to do with the distorted use of wealth, social position, or political power. But through his death, burial, and resurrection, he broke the power of sin and Satan, and he guarantees the world's transformation when he returns in glory and power. Similarly, the church is to move culture's institutions toward genuine biblical righteousness, all the while anticipating his final transforming work when he returns to complete it. How does a believer live this incarnational model? Again, We identify with the institutions of the culture in which God places us. We go to the banks. We shop in the stores. We serve on school boards, etc. But we separate from its evils. We're not corrupt. We're not greedy. We're not immoral. We're not dishonest. All the while seeking to be the agent of God's transforming grace. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are the world's salt. We are its preservative. We are its light exposing its darkness for what it is. Well, as we live out that life, we live with immense tension. The tension between that which is transformable and that from which we must separate. Let me give you some examples as we think through this, as we bring this program to its conclusion. There are many good institutions and structures in our culture Art, economics, sports, vocation. But there are evil distortions of these good structures pornography, greed, workaholism, idolatry. The Christian should identify with the good structures of culture and seek their transformation, but always separating from their evil distortions. Looking for the biblical answer to each practical question is probably not possible in this world. What would be some examples of the tension that we experience in seeking to identify with cultural structures while separating from its usual distortions? For example, should a Christian own a television? Should we listen to non-Christian music? Should we darn our socks or throw them away? Obviously, believers will answer these questions differently, but how each is answered represents the variety of expressions within the Christian church. How Christians personally resolve this tension should produce a healthy biblical tolerance, a thankfulness for the multiplicity of expressions of Christianity. It's not always easy to resolve the tension between identifying with cultures, institutions, and structures, and seeking to separate from the distortions of each. Some Christians will choose not to own a television. I had a very good friend who raised his children without any television. He wanted them to read. When the kids left home, they got a TV set. He made a choice of how he was going to live his life, how he was going to live with that tension. Should I have a TV? We chose not to. In all the years I've had my own home, we've had a television. Well, we set the boundaries we set rather significant parameters and boundaries for the children, even for our own personal lives, on what we watch, how long we watch it, and so on. The same thing applies to a Blackberry, an iPhone, iPad, computer, uh, games, all of those things. We have to decide how we're going to handle this, because the Bible doesn't tell you whether you should watch television or not, but it gives you principles. It gives you guidelines. So some Christians will choose... Not to own a TV. Some will not listen to secular music. Some will discard old socks rather than darn them. Agreeing to disagree on such matters guards against unhealthy legalism and promotes a healthy dialogue about living in a non-Christian culture. There is tremendous tension, tremendous uncertainty, and tremendous potential for distortion in living out this incarnational model. Remember, we identify with the institutions of the culture in which God places us. Yet, we're always sensitive to to separate from the evil and evil distortions in that culture, all the while seeking to be the agent of God's transforming grace. That is our assignment. That is what our life looks like as we live out Christ in this ungodly world. That's what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. We identify with that culture, the American culture of 2012. With all of its evil, with all of its dysfunction, we are here to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet... We seek to separate from the evil distortions of that culture. Christian leaders are people of integrity, people of honesty. We stand out because we represent Jesus Christ. Let me think with you about the two metaphors Jesus used as we conclude this New Year's edition of Issues in Perspective. After Jesus went through the Beatitudes, those amazing eight character traits, he said, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What does that mean? How do we unpack those two metaphors? As we conclude, let me suggest two thoughts. As we live out that incarnational model, identifying with culture and its institutions, separating from the evil of the culture, all the while seeking to be the agent of God's transforming grace. We are preservative. That's how the first century would have understood Christ's name, naming of salt of the earth as a metaphor for describing the Christian. In the first century, they didn't think a lot about salt on a good juicy steak like you can buy in an Omaha restaurant. They didn't even necessarily think of it as something that added a taste, a certain flavor. Or creating a thirst. It was a preservative. It was an incredibly valuable commodity. I think that's how Jesus wants us to think about living with the tension of a fallen world, representing him. We are preservative. And wherever we are, whether it's in business, whether it's in school, or whether it's in our neighborhood, or even in our churches, we are preservative, seeking. Prevent further deterioration and dysfunction in the culture. But we're also the light of the world, Christ says. Light exposes darkness for what it is. It exposes darkness for what it is without even saying a word. Francis of Assisi, who lived in the 1100s and 1200s, says, At all times, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. That's our mission. As we are the preservative and the exposing of darkness, our very presence makes a difference. As we seek to live out that incarnational model of Jesus Christ, in the world but not of the world, we're in the world. We are its salt, we are its light, but we're not of the world. We are distinctively different because Christ is transforming us from the inside out. And our presence makes an extraordinary, life-changing, transformational difference. So as we begin 2012, may we be the disciples of Jesus, representing him well in this fallen world as salt and as light. May God bless you in 2012. Happy New Year.